1: This is One Heat Minute.
0: Drop of a hat, these guys will rock and roll. What's your name? Wayne Grove. look like gang bangers, working the local 7-Eleven of you. Robbery, homicides, take me
1: Give me all you got! This and- Give me all you
0: got! I do what I do best. I take scores. You do what you do best. I'm trying to stop guys like me.
1: A podcast dedicated to all 170 minutes of Michael Mann's L.A. crime opus, Heat, one minute at a time. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to One Heat Minute. I'm your host, Blake Howard. And joining me, well, this is actually, a like, I t- I've talked about some real proper treats um, of folks that I really wanted to get on the show. Um, this man has probably heard me talk more about Heat, or almost as much about Heat, as any human being that's alive now 76 hours essentially of episodes listening in he is dr hamish ford he is a senior lecturer in film media and cultural studies at the university of newcastle he's the head of um uh, the uh, discipline and he's the program convener for the bachelor of arts program there he is my university uh, mentor uh, honors coordinator um and uh, and teacher and he was uh uh, uh, instrumental in my thesis, which is titled "What Makes a Man," Hamish Ford. Welcome to One Heat Minute.
0: Thanks so much, Blake, and thanks very much for having me on. It. This sounds like a great project.
1: And so, uh, as um, uh, we're, we're going to dive into a lot of things, we're going to start when you kick off the minute. with Hamish and I are going to watch together, and then we can come back. But we've talked for hours, almost. I feel like um, on Michael Mann and uh, and 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 Hamish sort of. Took me down the rabbit hole um, on authorship and masculinity and particularly in influences of uh, European cinema on Michael Mann. So I'm really looking forward to chatting to him about this. But let's just dive into the minute to watch it. We've got the lovely John Voight as Nate, um, who Kyle Turner lovingly said was giving uh, Robert De Niro's Neil Macaulay a maternal advice discussion about why um, he shouldn't um, he should be sort of getting out of this job and, and this is De Niro saying no he's going to keep going so here we go we're going to watch the minute together you guys are going to listen along and then we're going to come back
0: and talk about it he Thinks you some kind of star you do this shot, you do that shot look how sharp this guy is to figure that funny as a heart attack man three marriages, what the fuck do you think that means he likes staying home Me as the man is one of those guys out there prowling around all night dedicated. With this guy, this much heat you should pass. It's worth the stretch. This guy can hit and miss. You can't miss once. You sure? I am sure.
1: John Voight, Robert De Niro. John Voight actually playing a cypher for a famous um, American crime author called Edward Bunker, a.k.a. Eddie Bunker, who was a, a, a famous sort of con man and a, and a, a, a set-up and sort of had to – he wrote this book called um, No Beast So Fierce, which is a really famous okay. book. Um, and so at the time uh, – I told a little ditty on the last podcast, but I'll tell you now fresh that um, at the time – Uh, Michael Mann wanted John Voight to sort of play Eddie Bunker. He's like, you're playing this guy. And at the time, John Voight was like, but but why don't you just get that guy to play that guy? Like, why are you getting me to play that guy? You know, any number of up-and-coming actors could play this role. And he said, oh, just because I want to work with you. And this is Mm. a nice excuse for us to work together. This is a really intense, cool little scene. It's got a great little relationship dynamic.
0: Mm. What
1: what, what are the things that you see straight up?
0: Uh, Yeah, so obviously... As so often in Man, we've got two men talking, uh, <laughs> and this is at least half of what Michael Mann is about, right? Two men talking, uh, because these are complex kind of bromance films, ultimately. <laughs> yeah, so they're ultimately bromance films, at least on, on one level, um, and about you know often conflicted relationships between men. In this case, it seems to be a fairly simple, benign relationship, really almost like a father-son or older brother, younger brother relationship. Um, and so there's a kind of tenderness there, uh, which yeah. I think you do get quite often in men at, at moments. So there's that, and there's obviously the point, of course, that this is an absolutely crucial moment for the plot uh, where um, Neil decides to basically make a bad decision Yeah, (laughs) Uh, This is the beginning of his downfall Uh, We're told he's a man of steel And of course he's been softened up by a woman God forbid Uh, You know, uh, always a bit of a problem in this world Uh, If only these guys were gay The whole uh, (laughs) problem would happen, right? Uh, I'm being facetious They would still happen, of course Because, you know, the problem is uh, You know, opening up your emotions in general Um, But nonetheless, he's decided to You know, not heed the warnings Of his... uh, Sort of father figure, older brother figure, and to go ahead with the plan. So important on, on plot. Um, plot's not really my thing, though. So what's more interesting here to me is, well, as we were speaking before we press record, so many filmmakers, particularly in Hollywood, are so boring when it comes to shooting conversation scenes. Hundred percent. You know, um, and what's interesting here is we've got a, a car conversation scene, which which tends to be even more tricky in terms of how to stage it. And man has chosen this wonderful set of oppositions, whereby the shots uh, that show uh, Voight talking and then De Niro in the foreground have a very manish, just a bit of abstract, blurry city lights business in the background. Yes. Um, and then when you cut back to De Niro uh, and Voight in the foreground, we have what appears to be sheer black yes. behind um, De Niro's face. So this is like a great little way, I think, of, of man. You know, sort of cutting between two uh, very theatrical, sort of non-realist, you know, bits of space. If you like, they're in a void seemingly when they talk. When we see De Niro, and then when we see Voight, uh, when he's speaking, we've got this kind of just, what the hell is it? You know, yeah. <laughs> the shapes and, and lights. And so, to me, this really raises something that's really core cool to these films, which is that. They're set in a particular context, a very masculine context and world, which in many ways is very old-fashioned. Yes. But at the same time, and this of course is not really a contradiction, but it's an extra layer. These guys are not real. You know, these guys are, at least the heroes of the films and the, and the key antagonists are, they in, in a weird way they're superheroes. You know, they're. They're like an adult version of superheroes. Yes. Which is why, of course, or partly why, you know, uh, many people, but um, one of man's core fan base, I think, is sort of middle-aged and older men who still watch <laughs> like, um, heroic men on some level. Yes. Right? And these guys are heroic, let's face it, you know. Um, they're oozing power and um, charisma and and also, of course, screwed up Business as well I mean you know these, these are also obviously part of the incredibly long tail of masculine crisis in the American <laughs> cinema yes um, but I love the way these. that's still
1: are- that's going on nine years after you and I were t- still talking about it we're still talking about new new Hollywood masculinity and crisis and that echoing through and a few you know um, Susan Jeffords called it the remasculinization of America some fantastic mm-hmm. stuff she wrote on you know, um, you know the, the Reagan era denying the Vietnam War and then it sort of comes crashing down in the early mm-hmm. 90s again um but it's this huge arc that just does it just doesn't seem to end like the Hollywood on one side you've got Hollywood amnesia in the form of superheroes and it just it's not going away it's like it's still manifesting itself in really great portrayals
0: no that's right I mean really it's been going on since the 60s yes um in the American cinema there was a blip there was a long blip between well that started with Jaws and Star Wars and then really kicked off in the early 80s so we had that sort of 80s period that was, on the surface, not about masculine crisis. It was about masculine affirmation. But if we read those films, of course, you know, the Terminator films and the Rambo films and everything, they're totally screwed up films about how neurotic American masculinity is on this mythic level. Yes. And, yeah, the, the Susan Jeffords stuff, which I think you introduced me to originally, actually, um, which I still talk about occasionally in first-year lectures because it's such an interesting thesis. Yes, yeah. Um you know, that was really a response to the the, the failures of the seventies and, you know, losing the war in Vietnam and and um, Watergate and everything. So, you know, it was a neurotic response to this incredibly um, this decade of failure, basically, yes. in terms of the United States' view of itself and of course its hyper masculine self self kind of image. Um, so this is where man, as we as we've spoken about it many times in the past, he's so um, he is a creature of the '70s in so many ways, but this is partly what makes the film so weird when you look at them in the '90s and subsequently, because they're shot, they're shot in a way which you know technically looks like contemporary Hollywood, but um, they're featuring a sort of a certain version of, of men which is tied to the '70s, but is somehow more mythic and heroic than probably a film from the early '70s would have been in some ways. I think. Yes. Uh, so he's giving you a little bit of both, you know, um, but he's sustaining the dream to some extent. What I would say, though, finally, sorry about that, is that, well, two things really. This never-ending arc of masculine crisis often I find really tedious and kind of like, <laughs> oh, can we be done with this? Um, and man, on the one hand, is at the centre of that. His work is like almost like part of the central canon of that. But as so often, the central part of the canon is interesting. Yes, it's just that there's way too much of it, and most of it is uninteresting. But man makes it interesting, even if you don't relate necessarily to the affection, if yeah. that makes any sense. Yeah, definitely.
1: Yeah. And I think what you you made the great point talking about what it's like a brother relationship and there's that tenderness in the way that the scene is staged is because there's, there's a few other sequences now that I've scrutinized it as part of the show, and folks who are listening have been a part of it too, is – there are signs well early like it happens right at that you know sort of 73rd minute as soon as he hears that the cops are on his tail there are signs oh. that he should turn back like he shouldn't do this he has a he holds court with his crew and you know about 77th minute and says we shouldn't do this we shouldn't do this and he's the one who's saying we shouldn't do it And what I love here about the contrast with the light and the dark and the void is that the void is even expressed in his performance because he never makes eye contact with void. That's what I keep being struck by in this scene. He's like, he's pouring over these documents and yes, it makes sense. But at the same time, you know, those people in your life from a sort of an emotionally real place, uh, you know, because they sort of are both these hyper um, archetypes at the same time, these really specific people. Right. he won't look at it. He will not look at the person who's going to give him the advice that actually says yeah. you need to turn back. And I love that about the dramatic truth of the scene at the same time as you, you know, that this is like, if he's not going to listen to Nate, John Voight's character yeah. here, yeah. he's yeah. never going to listen to anyone. And it's like, it's like that predetermination, the fatalism of the movie comes back. It's like, yeah. Yeah. this guy yeah. was always going to go until his death. And we already know it now in the, in the eighty, what is the eighty fourth minute? I'm sorry, the eighty fourth minute yeah. that we're discussing right now.
0: No, look, that's so true. I mean, um, that's a great point. The tenderness, I should have added, is is largely implicit. Yes. And it comes more from Voight, actually. Yes. Uh, because he, you know, I mean, Nate is this kind of like cold guy, basically, who is only just starting to develop some kind of emotional life seemingly and I think on the commentary track man refers to him as a void like his actual character or as uh, as a guy basically just with a void where there should be some kind of you know softer material um and yeah so he can't quite handle maybe I mean you know if you want to be a bit sort of touchy-feely about it just like in this scene he can't look at Voight because Voight is showing too much concern and tenderness for him uh, of course, while also not wanting to unmask his own, you know, operation. Yes, but still, yeah. there, there is a kind of, there is a, a certain, yeah, in Voight's performance and that final phone call too that they have later in the film. Yes. Where you just detect a sense of like paternal or fraternal care. Yes. From him. But he doesn't get much back from De Niro. So I think that's that's really that's really true what you say. You know, De Niro, even in that last phone, phone call, phone call he doesn't really say, oh, thanks for all your help or anything.
1: No, you know? <laughs> no, no. I, it's, that's my favorite. I always tell my friends, I wish I could be like Vincent Hanna or like Neil McCauley on phone calls because like Al Pacino picks up the phone and he doesn't even talk. He just like, yeah. he yeah. just holds the phone to his ear. People go, you know, couldn't trace that. Uh, explosive incident, he goes, that's wonderful, and just hangs the phone up. Like yeah, no, to exactly. to have that ongoing relationship, I know, like we're both normal people, so you can't have that with your wife or with your friends. You know, you can't do that. Um, but I just I love those little touches. They always sort of make me chuckle oh, in amongst oh, no, the character. great. Was
0: great. <laughs> I wanted to pick up something else you said as well about this kind of fatalism, because what really struck me when you when you were saying that, I mean, not only is it true, but this scene because this scene is so important in him starting this 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 you know, the second half of the film, roughly, right, where, I mean, the scene is very modest on one level. I mean, there's lots of other scenes in the film that are much more grandiose and kind of, you know, set-piece oriented. This is not a set-piece scene at all. It's a scene you could easily overlook. And, in fact, probably if I had just watched the film without seeing which minute you had asked us to discuss, I, I would have probably, like, passed it over. Yes. But Because, first of all, I went to that scene looked at it first and then, then watched the whole film. I sort of started to watch it and just kept watching. Um, I realized that this is yeah this is a pivotal scene because he's deciding to go down this path and the path that he's going down is not only fatalistic it's a kind of it's a kind of theme in man which is amor um, fu, like crazy love. Yes. Yeah. And it's not so simple as to say it's crazy love for someone. No. So it's not the, the more romantic version where you fall in love with a woman or a man or whatever, and that just makes you go crazy. Although that is there in the background because we're led to believe that his growing love for Edie is unhinging him, right, yes. or making him lose his machine-like Discipline. Powers, yes. you know? <laughs> Um But I don't even think it's just that. I think it's it's more that sort of thing where if you put one little tiny thing out of place, his judgment is clouded. And a certain crazed uh, passion takes hold. And I think um, that's where he starts to become more like Pacino's character as well. Because yeah. initially you're going, okay, here's supposedly a story about a cop and a criminal and how they're similar. And yet for the first half of the film, you're going, how are they similar? Yeah. <laughs> uh, they're, they're, they're totally different. Pacino's kind of almost a hothead. Yes. You know? he, he, he has rows with his wife and he th- throws TVs and you know, <laughs> all that kind of stuff. And he's very emotional, right? He's a very emotional guy. And he he does he, he almost like overdoes certain scenes with these like almost comedic turns. And, and uh, meanwhile, De Niro never raises his voice. No. You know? um, so you're thinking how oh, these two guys are the same. But at this moment in the film... De Niro is starting to become more like Pacino because Pacino is obsessive. He's an obsessive character, isn't
1: he? Yes. No, they're, bo- they're both obsessive in their own way, but he's outwardly obsessive. Like he, he can't yeah, hide yeah. it. There's none of this, there's none of this artifice of control. Yeah, he, yeah. He's very impulse orientated. So all that like histrionics is part of his whole persona. Like that's how he yeah. gets obsessed. And it's so bipolar. Yeah. Like he goes up yeah. and then he loses the energy to function as a normal human being because he has to go so high yeah. <laughs> in all that other that's parts fun. of the film. That's
0: right. That's right. And I was thinking about, um, again, uh, something that man was saying on, my, on the commentary on the Blu-ray um, and DVD, um, that, oh, uh, yeah, that's right, he was he was talking about different kinds of cops and he said certain guys, cops and detectives, their position is that you have to be removed. You can never get emotionally involved in what's happening. Yes. Because and otherwise otherwise you can't cope with it and also you're not going to be helpful to the, the people. And this is, he was talking about this over the scene where the young prostitute's body is discovered. Yes. And the, and the mother rushes in and, and he gives her a hug. And so he's talking about that notion that there are other cops that are the complete opposite, that sort of embrace their humanity and, and fully emotionally engage in the horror of what they do and, and of what they see. And I think he described it that these are like a, a more elevated level of cop, you yes. know, and that Pacino's character, Hannah, is is that kind of guy. So in Man's Eyes, although he seems a little bit crazy, Pacino's character is actually... The best kind of cop. Yes. And, and again, this gets back to the notion. I think he's almost like a superhero. Yes. You know, he's dysfunctional and and he can't hold down a. His personal life is all screwed up and stuff. But there's something unbelievably heroic about him. Yes. You know. So I think this moment where we don't see this scene in the film, of course, where we don't see, Pacino, he's still there, obviously, because we see a picture of him. Yeah. But also,
1: and we see a picture of him happy. What? What's even yeah. funnier? He's, it's it's the point where he realizes that he's been seen, and he's sort of happy, smiling, like, oh, "Ah, yeah. here we yeah. are." It's even funnier yeah. that we're talking about it.
0: Well, that's right, that's right. And so he's invoked. Neil learns about him for the first time, and it's like the the love story begins here. Yes, but it's 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 not just a question of bromance love, although certainly that's one way you can talk about it. And you know, I'm sure there are great queer readings of this film available. You yes. know. Um, I'm sure you talked about this on. <laughs> um, but I'm not even just referring to that. I mean more this shared amour food, this crazy love, this this passion that actually makes you do things you shouldn't really do if you thought about them in a more rational way. And you know, John Voigt is the voice of reason in this and and Neil is choosing to to not follow that path. Um, so I think those little pictures of Hannah are those little intercuts, which on one level are very conventional. They're still really important because they're like shards of this initial frisson, you know? Yeah. This, <laughs> yeah. like, the, you know and, and of course he says, you know, and it's quite funny. He says, Hannah likes you.
1: He likes you. You do this you good. Know? You do this sharp. You do that sharp.
0: Yeah. It's like teenagers. It's like, you know, like <laughs> he really likes you. It's like, and, and he's almost, there's a little, Tiny, tiny glimmer on Neil's face of pleasure at
1: that. Yeah, satisfaction. It's, it's what's so strange. And you just talked about that—that um, that crazy love—and it was something that we we discussed a lot. You know, mm-hmm. back when I was studying, was that man, man archetypal characters, and particularly his protagonists, often have this lure towards the sublime. And it was some—it was a philosophical sort of tangent that you sort of helped coach me down. But I see it it's so pronounced when Neil does that amazing um, uh, look out to the ocean where he's framed with his gun on the glass yeah, table. Yeah, it's yeah. F- famously copied from an Alex Colville painting um, mm. uh, where, you know, sort of he's, he's standing there and has his gun on the draft table. But here it's kind of a, it's it's almost like a morsel of that because in, especially in the way that it's staged, because he's just against the black void, not mm. looking to reason, not looking mm. to reason, listening hearing things but he's not purely hearing you know uh, the guidance to get out of this he's like no nope, mm. this is where i am his mm. only satisfaction is in the danger like yeah. that's where it is yeah. that smile that glimmer it's like we've mm. just got this potential you know yeah. this is this is you know there's that weird thing it's been pronounced in other movies and you know in different scripts a million times over it's like oh, this is where the fun begins right this is where yeah. the actual fun is the, we know we we both know we exist and now mm-hmm. here we go and that's like that choice it's really interesting in this in this particular scene
0: yeah i mean it's it's almost like this in this genre whatever genre it is or or particular authorial take on a genre it's this uh, and there's two other scenes that sort of do it as well. They're, it's like the equivalent of the meet-cute moment in a rom-com. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know. So <laughs> the other two scenes I'm thinking of is when, first of all, when Pacino's character sees Neil for the first time and he says, he's the loner guy. He's the loner, yeah. Yeah. And the other guys are all kind of normal, you know, slightly cliched-looking guys. They're obviously criminals in one way or another. But he's this super smooth guy in a nice jacket no connections, no wife and kids or anything like that. Here's the and line. Pacino's like, oh, this guy interests me. You know, it's yes. almost like, hmm, you know, <laughs> <laughs> tell me more. Um, and then the other scene I'm thinking of is when, I mean, he gets really excited about this when he works out that they're being filmed, yes. that, that they've been made, right? He okay. goes, we the cops have been made. Um, and he, I mean, he almost has an orgasm when he finds that hat. He's <laughs> like jumping up and down, almost like a lunatic, you know. And meanwhile, as if that wasn't kind of all exciting enough, then you have those shots of Neil doing the filming. Yeah. We're almost in Hitchcock territory in terms of like voyeurism and pleasure of the gaze kind of stuff. But here we've got, of course, he, men looking at men.
1: He couldn't have a more Jimmy Stewart phallic lens also from the top of that. <laughs> From yeah the top, yeah, from the top exactly. of that tower and he takes exactly. he takes a deep satisfaction it's just one of those moments where you smile as well it's like the whole the pure voyeurism of whatever this thriller crime genre whatever you want to call it it's like we're yeah. all we all know these guys are going to meet and it's about it's mm. it's michael mann having a really fun game of how to you know keep us on the edge yeah. of our seat for this okay. relationship but it is this relationship that people are interested in seeing they want to see these two collide
0: That's right, that's right. And, I mean, it's sort of, you know, I guess what makes it um, also so affecting and sort of tragic, obviously, obviously, is that um, this is not a conventional love story or or a gay film or whatever. This is about two guys who, when they meet, one of them will die. So it's less about eros, it's less about desire through, you know, sex and and love or whatever than than a terrible kind of bond you know, a bond yeah. which can only lead to death. And there's just – there's such a horrible sense of kind of, yeah, fatalistic death drive stuff in this film, yes. you know, as, as as with this whole tradition of filmmaking. But, I mean, man man just kind of nails it. There's nothing particularly commanding in these films about everyday life. You know, what's commanding is the to lure towards death.
1: Yes. And you know? and, and, and de- death is always a consequence of um, – you know, whatever their purpose is. I wanna yeah. I wanna go away from I think we've talked on the show and a lot of people talk about man in professional professionalism, but I really like now just sort of reframing it a touch and say, look, it's no, it's about purpose. Because people mm. find purpose in their profession. It's not just the doing. Mm. It's what the it's what the doing means to them.
0: What it yeah, gives yeah, them.
1: Yeah, yeah. And I and I feel like that's that's what's sort of getting elevated at this point. It's like what Neil could have been anything. He's hyper intelligent you know hyper intelligent studious you know spartan willing to sacrifice things yeah yeah and and it's like this lure to this other stuff you know there's all it, it just so happens that the environment or whatever that spat him into the criminal justice system in america that then reprogrammed him with all the skills that he needed to be an efficient and effective criminal to not go back into jail like that mm. harnessed all of that stuff and there's even flavors you know that we've we've talked about earlier in the show that he has a marine Corps tattoo Mm. so he's been in the army. So there's mm. also that sort of, that, that other thing. It's like that discipline didn't work for him. What is yeah. the purpose of this criminality that it's making? It's, that's driving him. That's what's so fascinating about Neil. I think that's what makes people just love the mystique, I guess, because you're just so
0: what
1: it's not, he's not doing it for the house on the ocean.
0: He no, wouldn't. no. And I mean, you can't even be bothered, you know, buying a decent kind of bit of furniture. <laughs> <No>. um, <laughs> no. you know, um, he's dissatisfied. I mean, it sort of gets back, in some ways, to what you were saying before. I think about the sublime, because we will address the last shot in that, that sequence in relation to that. It's very important. But but before we get to that, uh, all, all of what you're talking about, I think, is very much connected to this especially American mm. um, action cinema version of the sublime, which is which is ultimately tied up with death. And it's what I find interesting is that part of the reason for that is that. Life, everyday life appears to be so either dysfunctional or dissatisfying in these films. Yes. So, you know, one of the things about American cinema I find that it's most generic is often that the reason why it emphasizes sort of heroic gestures or, or generic, um, uh, you know, set pieces or whatever is because everyday, everyday life is so horrible and bland. Yes. You know, yes. and so I've been thinking about, say, the slow burn tragedy of something like Better Call Saul at the moment. Yes, you know, yes. Where you've got this incredible sort of very slow critique of how tedious everyday life is in, in the United States in this case. Yes. You know, at, 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 at all levels of the system, including at a kind of upper middle class, successful professional level, there's no beauty. There's no... There's no mystery to it. Yes. You know? And so what we get... So I think part of what Jimmy's doing on that show is not just kind of failing through having been rejected by the more bourgeois elements of his society as embodied by his brother, but he's kind of finding them boring. Like he's, there's something that's driving him to... Well, what I think ultimately is the kind of the noir universe. So yeah. not just because of lighting regimes and whatever. I mean more the dissatisfaction with what apparently is possible in the everyday world leads you to this more, this amour food, this crazy passion to embrace something else, yes. whether it's a person or a lifestyle or, or a criminal project or whatever. And so this is where I think heat is also deeply connected to those traditions of noir that are actually in some ways about critiquing American life and society and kind of options. Yes. You know? Um, so it often gets channeled, therefore, um, into this kind of violence, into this kind of death drive. Yes. There appears to be no other source of of um, the sublime. Yeah, and and
1: what it makes so there's in heat there's uh, what sometimes people might call like fleeting scenes now really leap out to me when you think of it, when you sort of f- start framing it with that noir drive towards that crazy lovers, because man is saying things about what is sort of systemically wrong with American society in like sort of, in a in a very subtle way, sort of the, just the entire sort of drive of the film. But then he has these like overt flashes. Like you look at Dennis, Dennis Haysbert's character, Don Breeden, like he comes out of jail and mm. the system is geared to drive him back to crime. Like to, you know, to, to to allow someone to walk into a coffee, you know, to walk into your place of employment and give you an option that that I've actually done the recording for on this show. And I know it's at the 110th minute because I've already it's already recorded in the can. And it's within 30 seconds, a crook who you knew from jail can give you an option. And that seems
0: better yeah, than yeah. living your life. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And then because your freedom. Because what's, what's on offer is banal every day. Crap wages, meaningless work, Yes, franchise, whatever, diner, flipping burgers. You know, this is it. This is either this or crime. Yes, It's amazing everyone doesn't choose crime. <laughs> yes. yeah. It's so much um. sexier. It's so much sexier. <laughs> That's right. Um, but getting back to that death drive too, I mean, of course, yeah, these films are thoroughly American in all kinds of fascinating ways, but there's also like an almost hmm, – there's an almost – there's an obsession with death in a film like this. I think that also gets back to more international kind of um, modes or, or traditions. So particularly, you know, the, the German cult of death.
1: Yes. You know, that we
0: see in, in traditions of poetry and literature and filmmaking, and of course tragically politics as well. I mean, yeah. people have endlessly on you know one of the many ingredients of of the National Socialists' uh, success, if you like, was a certain kind of embrace of death. Yes. Uh, that it was—it's it, part of the culture in a way, and I think in a different way, that's true of the United States as well. You know, I mean, here's a country that still uh, puts people to death on a regular basis, yep. depending on the state. Um, the United States could not join theoretically; could not join the European Union. Not that it would ever want to, of course, but it can't even agree with its main uh, Western counterpart on the number one criteria uh, that you have to agree to if you want to join the EU, which is that your government will not kill you. The state cannot kill people. (laughs) So when people talk about the West as if it's got some shared values, it's kind of like, well, what values? (laughs) Because According to the EU, that's the number one most important thing. You know, in Europe, your government cannot kill you. In the U.S., that's not the case. No. So we have this institutionalization of death in the United States, which is increasingly out of step with the rest of the developed world. We have the cult of death, of course, of their military. Um, You said Neil had a um, a a military tat, right? Military tat, yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's that whole, to my mind, still unresolved, uh, you know, bloodbath massacre, whatever you want to call it, um, Holocaust, really, that was Vietnam. I mean, up to five and six million people in Indochina were killed. Um, that's, you know, we still haven't even really dealt with that, I don't think, that right. our number one friend and ally did that and we were part of it. Yes. So all that stuff, it's a kind of, it's almost a worship of death that is just throughout the culture. And I think these films are partly a product of it, but they also, of course, because it's so personalised in these big heroic masculine characters, we have to confront it not in a political way, because Man is not a political filmmaker. I think. Yes. But in a way that's sort of subtle, and you know, all this stuff is like bubbling away beneath the surface. You know, that, that's how I see it. Again.
1: Yeah, that, that's the texture. He, he's never felt. Man doesn't feel like he makes. Or well, he's so authentic in his portrayal, but I think at the same time he does. He's not. Um, that's where he's much more of like a European style filmmaker is that he's he's not he's not hitting you with a bludgeon that's a more yeah. 70s style it's a little bit under the surface it's all in the it's all in the subtext of what's happening in the film and when things you know do do sort of emerge it's it's all in the authenticity of the moment so that donald breeden scene you know oh. you, you need to know about you need to get the context so it's he's like he retrofit the character like he needs to get the context of how bad this guy's life is and what the um the frustrations of the system are and where he would get to in order to be able to reapproach it, to come back and say, Hey, yeah. this is a guy who in 30 seconds can give up his entire life. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and so for him, that's I think how he's able to approach some of these more, I guess, politically overt conversations, but it's not in his filmmaking because it, he has to first retrofit it.
0: Oh, look, I, I agree. I mean, one of the many myths about 1970s American cinema, I mean, it's a very over mythologized decade. Yes. One of the myths, I think, uh, that that generation has spread partly about itself, I, I would add, <laughs> yes. is that this was some wonderful radical decade. No. Um, and that's largely a lie. You know, I mean, you look at those films, you look at, Uh, The the big films, you look at the small films from the early 70s, lots of interesting films and some great films in there, but very few that I would call radical politically or in any other way. Yes. Um, They're politically all over the place and often troubling as well yes um, the stuff with gender is is you know in some ways i mean people criticize man for being you know disinterested in women and, and stuff and that's probably true to, to to a degree but the 70s stuff is often worse i mean the treatment of women in those 70s films is is often very shoddy yes <laughs> and the men get away with murder um oftentimes you know yeah now in a way i'm criticizing those films but also what i'm saying is that those films and Man um, are preferable, in my view, to what I call the liberal Hollywood model. Yes, which is the sort of the we're going to tell you we can give you a nice version of history, and we're going to make some very small critical comments about you know we're going to make a film about the CIA and talk about a couple of bad eggs, or you know <laughs> we're going to talk about Vietnam and say well we had good intentions but things went a bit wrong. This kind of milk toast, very small, <laughs> yes. small yes. scale critique, which is like, increasingly, I would rather either no critique or overtly right wing films that at least we can talk about the neuroses of.
1: Yes. You no.
0: Know? So, for example, I would say that something like Green Berets, which is obviously a hilarious <laughs> film in many levels, is in a weird way, a more honest film about what the United States told itself about Vietnam than all those liberal Hollywood films yes. that lied to us completely. <laughs> Um, so I think man's man's if you like, apolitical, or uh, yes, he's the fact that he's not a liberal Hollywood guy. I'm not talking about his personal views. I'm yeah. talking about what the film seem to be saying is part of their fascination and part of what makes them rich. I, I would agree with you. Yeah,
1: yeah and I think
0: um, I I like
1: um, I think some of the the great films at that time they it's like a comedic term. You just sort of they're throwaways like the whole context is a throwaway. They're just throwing away and they're hitting you, hitting you, hitting you. It's not, not very overt, not very overt in just anything in the politics with um, a man. And some, some of the best films of that time, you know, you, you look at the contrast of like all the president's men versus Mm. network, like Mm. network is the bludgeoning (laughs) network is the, is, is the vastly more radical one. Whereas all the president's men, um, all the president's men and some echoes in like the Godfather there's a great line in The Godfather that Mark you know, that Pacino actually says where he's like, you know, my father's just like any, you know, any uh powerful man, like a senator or a governor, and you know, um Diane Keaton's fa um Kay, she says, um she's like, Oh, but senators don't kill people, Michael and he's like, Who's being naive now, Kay? Like yeah, that's you- like that, that that that's like the there's these little morsels in some of those mainstream ones that are kind oh. of semi radical and then you You do have to take, there's those odd ones that come out in like that period of cinema, like a network, which almost then gets swallowed by the entire genre or the entire sort of era because there's just all this other blockbuster stuff. And it's only now you sort of go back and go, wow, that was actually radical. You know, that was actually radical and really radical in in an American context.
0: Network is a funny one. I remember us talking about this a long time ago it's um it's making some good commentary obviously in relation to tv but also you know it even kind of brings in radical politics as a bit of a subplot that's all kind of interesting stuff but it really troubles me in that film the way that um the, you know the problems of commercial television at that time are so gendered you yes. know so, so Faye Dunaway is kind of uh, it's almost, a, I don't know, there's almost something misogynist about the way that she's kind of tagged with this dumbed-down culture. Yes. And these old 60-something guys are somehow the good, <laughs> grand old man of what television should have been and what news media should be. Until they go into Alzheimer's
1: rages and exactly. uh, start exactly. screaming exactly.
0: at the sky. <laughs> exactly. Um, so it's interesting, you know, I mean, before we, we get back to, to heat for a minute, you know, like people like Robert Altman, you know, when you read a lot of work on him as I did a few years ago and I I I wrote a couple of really long pieces on on his seventies films and I found that a lot of the writing on Altman in a way misrepresents those films because it suggests that they're these kind of liberal, even at times radical essays on American society. Um in a very anthropological kind of way almost. And and when I watched them, I was quite relieved that they weren't that, actually. Yes. No, they uh, does not There was a level of ambiguity there, of slipperiness, which was much more interesting than just making, yeah, boring kind of liberal comments on how we should all be nicer to each other or, you know, whatever it might be. I mean, there is an interesting politics to these cinema, but I don't think it's just that. No. Um, uh, so it's funny, though, isn't it, when you compare Altman to someone like Mann, because Altman's... Men are, uh, well, he's interested in men, but he's not interested really in heroic men. No. Like the closest we could get would be, um, I don't know, in a way something like, well, the genre things like um, Long Goodbye, obviously, yeah. although there's a lot of joking around there. But even something like um, California Split, there's something, I mean, that's his big bromance film. <laughs> yes. Um, and there's something almost in a very pathetic way, ultimately superhero about those guys, I think. Um, where that is that is a kind of love story, but a really sad one, and again about the banality of everyday American life. Um, hey, look, getting back to the, the the minute for for a minute. Yeah, we can do that.
1: We're, as you can see, this is a, we're going exactly how these minutes go. <laughs> they start at the minute, and then we branch off into the entire universe, and then we come back. So, thank you yes. for thank you for bringing us back to the minute.
0: No, no worries. No worries. <laughs> what I want to say is. Um, In our chat before we we started recording, I mentioned that um, one of my little kind of rules increasingly uh, is that, uh, you know, within a minute of filmmaking, I want to see something. I want to see something vaguely interesting come from the filmmaker. And where a lot of films don't do this, I think, is in dialogue scenes. and, and, And we talked about that earlier. But I love the way that this dialogue scene is followed by an absolutely archetypal man image where you have that just exquisite composition of all of those um, verticals underneath the freeway. Yes. And, of course, the lens flare as the car comes out. As the car, comes, as the car out. comes out. And I'm not a big scholar um, of man, but I, as far as I know, he was probably one of the earlier guys of the recent period to really start using a lot of lens flares and to make that a kind of a, a popular gesture, but also an acceptable gesture, right, within yes. a Hollywood film is that correct do you think or? yeah I, I think
1: I think you'd be spot on but the thing is with man he again it's that hyper obsession with authenticity it makes perfect sense in this scene in the even in the editing it's like it's this perfect thing we're seeing the light you know we're illuminating direction the flare yep. comes at us. We're immersed in this scene, like we're in like an antimatter space. And the car lighting up is like oh, we're back to the world again. We're back to this, you know, um, physical industrial LA world that we've been seeing for you know the preceding sort of eighty odd minutes. And so he 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 has used them, but they're very sparing. They're like they're always around, you know, different parts of whatever story he's telling. So the most pronounced ones is there's like maybe one in Collateral, one or two, but it's all about that be, you know, he's he's much yeah. more interested. Um I'll I'll get the precise phrase because Kyle, who's in the preceding episode to yourself, said this great said this great phrase. He he sort of the the digital artifice is what he becomes more obsessed with after yeah. heat. Yeah, and, yeah. And, yeah. And, and Kyle called it Kyle Turner that is guys if you want to follow Kyle on Twitter it's at Kyle Kerner. It's a spoonerism of his name. He called it the crumbs of reality. And I just loved that turn of phrase, that sort of that sort of sandy, grainy, digital, um, and it's and it's almost like he's trying to affect that later tungsten light that we see behind John Voigt's character's head in a lot of his other night shooting that come with like yeah. collateral, the night scenes in Ali, um, and particularly Miami Vice. The whole of Miami usually is this sun-drenched, stylish. Yeah. Um, business kind of a landscape, but in man's world, it's this—you know—tungsten evening street lights, you know, car lights, the, the the lights from your dashboard being able to sort of trick the light the the, the the way that you're looking. So yeah, he's he's it's his man's style is only it's like for character. He's like that hyper obsessed method director, like a method actor.
0: It's funny, isn't it? Because, I mean, obviously guys like J.J. Abrams were criticised a lot more recently for for turning lens flare into a fetish um, yes. signature. Uh, and I think even he's toned it down subsequently. In Heat, actually, there's quite a lot, not as much as Abrams, but there's more, I think, maybe, than Man's other films. But it's always exquisite the way he uses it. And that, that shot that we're talking about there, um, it's just perfect because the – We've seen this kind of fairly dimly lit scene in the car, yes. and then the, yeah. br- the brilliance of the lights. And then after a couple of seconds, it's like a kind of um, what's the word I'm looking for? It's like the light does something magical to the image. Yes. You know, I mean, it's already brilliant, but then it's a, it literally transforms it into almost like a kaleidoscopic effect. Yes, we have these multiple colours, these kind of rainbow colours that just explode in the centre of uh, the image. And the architectural stuff there, um, you know, is just wonderful. I mean, th- this whole film is full of locations. We were talking earlier about his fetish for location work. Yes. So there's always like a double layering of space in these movies, well, at least double anyway, where you've got real <laughs> locations, which is fantastic, but then you've got the the, the manising of them you Know you've got the the his particular very strict rules about palette, which in this film are, are reaching like you know, <laughs> of, of, it, all even stuff. his
1: even his infrared camera, Hamish, has to be infra blue, <laughs> it cannot exactly. be infrared. That's how hyper obsessed he is,
0: exactly. Uh, so it's 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 as close to monochrome as you can get while technically being a color film, N- not in that sense of being, um, uh, you know, uh, almost the Word I'm looking for, you know, fake black and white, but yes. just in, it's blue and black, it's a blue and black film, yes, uh, basically. And and I was also wondering, just on that actually, whether this obsession in recent Hollywood or recent Dish Hollywood towards teal, uh, and there's a lot of stuff online kind of bemoaning the fact, you know. Um, mm-hmm. Oh, I'm sorry, yeah, that's all right, you're, you're good. oh no, uh, no, no, I'm, I'm good.
1: Um, I'm just getting knocked on the door because I didn't realize that someone needs to come in here. So I've got to get out in just a moment, but we can wrap up.
0: Yeah. I mean, this, this Teal stuff, I mean, surely man played a part in that uh, ratcheting up this kind of, I, I think the stuff that man
1: did physically with a director like a director of photography like Dante Spinotti um, has just been tried to digitally been recreated, and him yeah. is like a digital pioneer. And the palettes that he was creating, it's like, it's that yeah. it's. I think sometimes it's that sort of cheap stylization, like people just color correct for color correct sake, like David. It's, yeah. it's, it's it's. I think, but but I agree with you. There's these stylish directors that come out, and that's the frustration, like you said earlier. There's like this center in a genre that seems, you know, a fairly uninteresting genre, a very two-dimensional genre. There's this center of these incredible films that are seminal, that are super influential, that people are always reaching for and they just never quite touch them. And they just create cheap knockoffs over and over again.
0: And you're like, God, this is so boring. I know, for sure. And this film, if anything, gets better. I mean, when I first saw it, when it came out, some of this stuff kind of skated over me, I think, and I was more concentrating on what I saw as the kind of overdetermined, you know, Pacino, De Niro, finally <laughs> together, face-to-face. <laughs> and this whole kind of, like, you know, um, uh, sort of, you know, just blowing up of that whole idea. But, I um, mean, yeah, that, that shot, that final shot at the end of the minute we're talking about, there's a three-dimensionality to it. It's like a 3D shot. You know, there's something incredibly tactile about it. The, the space and the and the pillars and, there, which is so typical of him.
1: And choosing to start the car, the the, the dust flares. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what I think adds to that brilliance when you've got the texture of let's start it started in the dirt. And the kicking up of the dirt, and then this three dimensional space, and it's almost like the dust as, that, as that's illuminated. You've got this sort of, hey. it almost feels like a cathedral esque look yeah. um, oh, in hey. that in that moment. It's really really beautifully staged. And Dante Spinotti nice. is a, you know, in two two years later he does my my other favourite um, films in this genre, which is L.A. Confidential, which is again in a film that is exquisitely. Yeah shot you know curtis hansen just you know that as a period film looks so gorgeous you know regardless of whether you like the the tale but it, again spinotti as a cinematographer is just quite exquisite
0: so those spaces are real but they turn into these kind of man spaces and also importantly most of them are unless you know la really well they're anonymous spaces you yes. know it's kind of um spaces that Gilles Deleuze called, you know, Anywhere Whatever Spaces. Yes. You know? I mean, it's like under a freeway somewhere in the United States. We assume in, in Los Angeles, right? Um, and then just super finally, I love the way that he lets the car actually leave the frame. Yes. You know? Like we are left with the graceful movement and this kind of pregnant 3D, luminous, kaleidoscopic, thanks to the lens flare kind of image, which is like, that is where his cinema is truly formalized, I think.
1: Yes. Um, Hamish Ford, thank you so much for being a part of One Heat Minute. It has been an absolute blast. You're coming back. As I said, I make people promise they'll come back <laughs> on the show. Um, you're coming back. It's been an absolute pleasure to catch back up and talk. We could have talked for hours, but, folks... Um, you can hear a morsel of what my thesis conversations were with Hamish, um, and and all the lovely uh, alleyways and directions he put me off. I super appreciate it, and I'm extremely thankful um, for Hamish' uh, his guidance and as a mentor. So thank you on the show uh, for as. Uh, as a tutor as my teacher thank you
0: um <laughs> you're most welcome Blade with blake it was always a pleasure and and, and it has been again and it's, it's a wonderful project so thanks for the invitation
1: thank you so much guys thank you to garth franklin for our web design mr paul davies for our awesome theme thank you to mr hamish ford once again and um for you guys who are listening uh, there'll be another episode of one heat minute just around the corner